Hey guys, welcome to the I Hope to Hear This podcast. And today, I hope people curious about immigrant psychology hear this. Hey guys, welcome to the I Hope to Hear This podcast, coming at you with another remote uh, episode. And we have a very special guest today. Um, I want to say Miss Hannah Lee, but I'm going to say soon to be <laughs> Dr. Hannah Lee, right? <laughs> because um, you're oh, working gosh. on your doctorate degree. Um, thank you so much for being on with us. Um, yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, and um, so I, I thought um, having you on would be really great because um, kind of the field of study that you're in and kind of your experience um, day to day, what you do at the clinic that you were uh, telling me about. Um, and I, I think it's going to be really eye-opening and and it's, I think it's going to be a conversation that is going to resonate with a lot of our audience. Mm-hmm. But before we get into all of that, um, I kind of want to hear about how you got to where you are now. Um, I see that uh, Harvard uh, flag in the back. Uh, oh, so. <laughs> that is my mom's doing. <laughs> oh, so, um, yeah. You, you, like the story to how you ended up at Harvard, um, mm. and how you ended up back, or how you ended up in Atlanta, that, that kind of whole story, if you could, if you don't mind sharing with us. Yeah, absolutely. So first, thank you so much for having me. Um, I am really excited just to be able to talk to you today, um, today just about mental health and about being Asian American, all that good stuff. Um, I... I think I would first probably start like my story of how I got into what I'm doing now when I was in college. Um, I was actually an international studies major um, with, I don't know, I was like double majoring in political science and I thought I wanted to go to law school and um, actually eventually end up in diplomacy. Um, that was like the like my parents do something prestigious, you know? Um, so I thought that was kind of the route that I wanted to take because I was always really interested in culture mm. and how it shapes um, like interactions between nations. And so um, that's kind of the route that I took. But I, like, and I actually really love my international studies classes. Political science, not so much. All you mm. do is um, read Plato and I don't know, have like discourse about mm. I don't know, dead people. Um, but I was, I actually took um, like an intro, what is the meaning of life kind of psychology class as like as an elective. Oh, interesting. And I had taken, you know, I had taken psychology in high school, like most of us have, um, and never really got that interested in it. And, or at least thought it was kind of a those one of those like side subjects, you know, mm-hmm. like you can't make any money off of it. You can't have a real career from it. Yeah. Um, just, you know, like, I don't know, it wasn't actually an actual option. Um, but I took this class and um, it just got me interested in, I think, psychological constructs. Um, and then because I was, as I was near my graduation date, um, I just needed to just fill like my, I don't know, list of classes and so I ended up taking a multiculturalism and social justice in counseling psychology class like that was actually the name of the course Mm -hmm. um and 
I think that just kind of changed everything for me. Um, we talked about, you know, culture, something, again, I've always been really passionate about, but we talked about it in a way where it really felt meaningful to the day-to-day -day lives of especially marginalized people, mm. um, people on the outskirts, minority communities. Um, and I guess kind of backtracking, I immigrated here when I was seven. I was born in Korea, finished up to first grade there. Um, and we to Florida, whole <laughs> places, our family. Um, and I grew, oh gosh, okay. So we moved to a city called Ala, Florida, where there is a population of like 300 horses and like three, like 300 people. It's, it's, I'm sorry for anyone that like loves Ocala and lives there. <laughs> but like, yeah, just being completely non-English speaking, right, being plopped in, um, a new country i think that was not the best place for it or for our immigration to kind of start mm. um, but we eventually ended up moving to orlando which was much better mm. and um yeah but still i grew up in a really predominantly white neighborhood and so and my parents own like a small grocery store most of my life in um, a low-income neighborhood and just kind of their very visceral experiences with racism and even just violence, you know, um, in the neighborhood that they own the store at, um, like lots of shootings, um, a lot of robberies, including my parents' store. It was kind of a, like, I don't know, every three months we'd get a call from the police, you know, saying like, your store is broken into. It was, it was one of those situations, yeah. And so, um, I don't know, and so I think like having, or just having watched my parents go through that experience, but us living in such um, kind of a white picket fence, you know, I don't know, A grade school, all of that was very, um, it was just a lot of code switching for me because I knew a big part of my immigrant um, identity and my, you know, parents and family, like all of that was rooted in kind of our lives as immigrants and as minorities. But again, trying to fit into this like white community, um, I grew up just very confused. And so during just kind of going back to this college class that I took, it was a space where not only were those experiences, um, just taught about in a you know scientific and research focused way where um, you know psychologists were doing scholarly work on trying to capture these experiences and um, not only you know just saying that this is stressful or you know this is a thing they were also able to pinpoint kind of all the psychological aspects um, and the costs it was real like really having to people wow. um, so, you know, detriments to their physical health, um, you know, educational attainment, all of, all of these things, right? Psychology bleeds into every aspect of the human experience. And so um, I just found it fascinating and that's kind of where I pivoted. Um, I still graduated with, a, with an international studies um, like degree, but I was, that's kind of when I set my sights, I think, into pursuing graduate school. Mm. So, after you graduated with your international, with was international studies? Studies, yeah. <laughs> um, did you do anything with it? Um, or was it like you went directly into your graduate studies? Yeah, so I had a little bit of time um, before I went to Boston. And mm -hmm. that's actually a pretty funny story too. I, and this is maybe where I would 
like the true origins of kind of how I came to be um, here is. So, so when I was 10 um, and right, like when I had, when we had moved to Orlando um, and lived there just for a couple of years, um, this professor, her name is Dr. Josephine Kim. Um, I think I have a picture of her actually like right up, up on my corkboard somewhere. I'll show you guys later if you want to see it. Um, but she is kind of a renowned um, Korean American professor at Harvard. Um, and she is connected with my pastor from my home church. And because they're kind of from that like the same um, DC, Virginia area. And so she had come to our church when I was 10 to give a talk on um, intergenerational conflict between Korean parents and their second generation kids. Mm. And so that conversation, what, like, I remember even at 10 years old, just it being like such a capturing to my, it was so capturing to my heart. No, I was 12. Sorry, Mm. not 10. I was 12. I was in seventh grade. Okay. Um, And just what she talked about changed me and you know I was sitting with my parents when I was like listening to this talk because of course every Korean person in Florida came for a talk from a professor at Harvard Um, and I just remember her saying the words that I had wanted to say to my parents like you know I wasn't obviously that old but um all the ways that I wanted to be understood by them, essentially, I felt like she was capturing that for me. And it was a really healing moment for us. Um, She was kind of this like medium almost between like my, my parents and I. And so we like cried together and prayed together. It was really um, significant moment. And I was 12. (laughs) Um, But so, and then like fast forward. So after college, I actually had kept in um, touch with Dr. Joe like intermittently so a couple times throughout high school and then a couple times throughout college just because she had such a big impact in my life um, but you know of course it was always like oh like how are you um like how are things and she would ask me like um how are your studies things like that um but after I graduated I when, when I was applying for grad school she came to mind and I was like, there's no way, there's no way I'm like smart enough, good enough. I don't know, like to ever even consider Harvard. Mm -hmm. Um, But she came to mind and just kind of the impact she had in my life. And so I emailed her and asked like what program, um, because there's 13 programs in the master's kind of like department um, at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, which is where I went. And so I asked what um, like program she's most affiliated with. And um, it was the one that I was also like interested in applying to if I was going to apply. And wow. so I just kind of took it as a sign and um, I, I applied to Harvard <laughs> amongst other like very good schools that mm-hmm. I you know was, would have been thrilled to go to any of them. And um, yeah, and then, this is actually pretty crazy. Um, I, I found out I got in and this is, I think why I mistook my like 10, 12 thing, but I found out I got in when I was 22. So mm-hmm. I've been exactly 10 years since I had first heard, um, Dr. Joe oh, speak. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is, I think maybe the crazier part. Um, I was actually in Atlanta when I found out. So huh. I was renewing my passport um, because I was going on a mission trip to Ecuador. And so I was here and like, and obviously when I finished my master's degree, I had no idea I would end up in Atlanta, but it was just kind of a a full circle thing. So she had a really big impact, but 
I think there was a lot of kind of orchestration um, that I, I could have never expected. So. so why were you in Atlanta to uh, get your passport renewed? Because uh, so um, I'm a green card holder mm -hmm. and the Korean consulate general's office is here. And so like if you're not a citizen, oh. that's like where you have to go do it. So I drove like I drove from Florida to Atlanta oh, to get wow. my passport renewed. Mm -hmm. Oh, I see. Oh, interesting. Wow. That, that is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Full circle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So when you actually went to Harvard, did you get to meet her and, you know? Yeah, yeah. She, so she, I mean, I took classes with her. Um, I actually, so uh, I chaired a conference that she is the department head for. Mm -hmm. It's called Let's Talk. And it's a conference dedicated to Asian and Asian American student mental health. Um, and the year that I chaired the conference, we focused on college student mental health, because um, that was kind of when there was a peak in suicide rate for Asian American college students. Mm -hmm. But traditionally, it had been a conference um, dedicated to um, doing work with parents kids, much like that talk that she gave at my church, but also educate and mental health practitioners. So kind of the whole gamut. Um, wow. And it's still like an ongoing conference. I went back the year after and was like, was like a speaker for it. And so I got wow. to work with her really closely in that capacity. And yeah, and she taught my classes and um, she mentored me and I still like text her all the time. So wow. yeah. So, so what is the name of the, the your graduate program? Yeah, it's called Prevention Science Practice. Um, so we call it PSP for short. Mm -hmm. um, and there's three branches. So there's one for um, practitioners. And then so it's, there's three, three strands, practice, um, research, and um, oh gosh, wait, was there two? There's three. Maybe there was two. Mm -hmm. Now it's like, oh man, my my memory is getting the best of me. But it was practice and research, and I was in the research strand. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, it was the oh, and then counseling was the third strand. Um, but it was for school counseling, which is a little bit different than what I do, um, like with what I do for work mm -hmm. now. Um, so those were like the three branches, and I was in the research strand. Okay. Fun fact, uh, two episodes before this one, mm -hmm. I actually had a school counselor on. Um, so I saw that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so no, yeah, connection there. So, so yeah. you, what is the difference um, between like practice, research, and the counseling aspects mm -hmm. of that program? Yeah, so um, school counseling is pretty like, you know, straightforward. It's uh, it's kind of mental health, health practitioners, but particularly only in a school setting. Mm -hmm. Um, and obviously kind of in the like first to 12th grade space mm -hmm. and, um, practice where folks for folks that wanted to go into different aspects of education. So I have friends that were in the practice strand, strand now that work for, um, like higher education. So they're in like advising departments, um, doing program evaluations and um, different, uh, even like policy roles. The folks just ended up in kind of a wide gamut of things. Like I have friends that are consultants. Um, yeah, so that was that's kind of the practice strand. It's supposed to encompass people that don't want to either go into like a strictly counseling role or a research role. Mm -hmm. um, and then research is kind of self-explanatory. Uh, we research kind of aspects of um, prevention science.
Hmm. And, and when you say prevention science, is that like, what, are, what exactly are you trying to prevent? Yeah. So I, I would describe my program as kind of a crossover between um, public health and education. Mm -hmm. So that's why it was a really good fit for me because I was able to um, tackle or learn and tackle issues through projects uh, related to mental health um, and specifically Korean student, like Korean student mental health. Um, but a lot of the focus of our program is like program evaluation. So are we able to, like, is this program that has a lot of funding and has a lot of manpower or is this nonprofit um, that's supposed to be serving like these specific needs of the community? Are they doing a good job at it basically? Is it mm -hmm. data driven? Um, like how are, you know, analyses of these, these research projects being translated into practice? Um, so it's kind of, it does a little bit of that role of connecting the two. So, uh, we had people work with um, depressed mothers and how that influences, you know, like outcomes for their kids. Long so it was like, it was a very interesting and very specific um, field, but it was fascinating. Hmm. Yeah. So when you were the program, you know, track that you're on with uh, research mm -hmm. is that research meant to inform like policies and, and things like that for the general public or is it mm -hmm. like specifically to influence how you know I don't know like counseling or therapy works yeah so <clears throat> what so the research strand was um special because uh we were we so uh, all the strands have a specific advisor, and my advisor, Dr. Nancy Hill, um, super renowned uh, researcher and scholar in um, the field of kind of adolescent and like youth, like youth mental health, mm -hmm. but um, in general, super well published. But I would say that the research strands' goal was mostly for scholarship. So, and this is kind of something that, like an issue that I would want to resolve with research actually, because it ends up staying within the ivory towers of academia. Um, the goal obviously is to want to translate into practitioners and practitioners include counselors. Um, but a lot of the times, like that's not the case. Scholars will do their research, publish in their um, esteemed peer reviewed journals. And that's kind of where the information will stay amongst the very uh, well-educated, right? And it doesn't translate into the depressed mother in a low-income low neighborhood. Mm. Um, but yeah, I would say because of the nature of our program, because we were collaborative with practitioners, um, we had hoped that our research would translate into practice. But again, um, that's kind of another beast. Mm. But it was like a ideal goal, if you I would see. say. I see. So, I mean, for you personally, um, going from Florida to Boston, mm -hmm. I mean, like, mm -hmm. in a, a lot of different levels, it's a very big transition, right? Like, weather, <laughs> I mean, even just, I'm sure the culture is very different, the people are very different. Um, mm -hmm. How was that for you? Was that an easy transition? Or? You know, so, I think, yes. So, the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. um, I actually think the Northeast is a much better fit for me as a person. Mm. I think by the time I was leaving Florida, I was ready. Oh, oh, ooh, I was ready. I was just like, it is so hot down uh -huh. here. Um, and I went to a school at the University of Florida. So it was Gainesville. There's literally nothing but UF mm -hmm. um, and like, like a, our hospital there that's really big. Mm -hmm. um, and 
I was just like ready to get out. And mm. the pace was really slow. The people I had known, you know, ever since I was, I basically had moved to America. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was really ready. And I think when I went, um, it was really the experience of a lifetime. I adjusted, I mean, my program, you know, or Harvard in general attracts people from all over the world, you know, like, so I had classmates from Egypt and like Nairobi, you know, um, and like, and also Florida, um, Mm -hmm. lots from California. So it was just a really global experience. And so I think, and and then you're thrown into this pot of of an experience, you know, and um, everyone's excited to be there and everybody wants to connect. And so that was really natural, I think, because we were all new and we were all pretty much kind of moving from somewhere else to um, Cambridge that it was easy to make friends. Obviously, these people are really motivated, really smart, um, really interesting, and really really big like fun party people and so we had like the best um like get togethers and I think the transition actually really um easy and I would probably say that when I was in Boston I was probably the most happy fulfilled um yeah content so I really I love my time there wow when you were in Korea what were you in Seoul Mm-hmm. I was. I wonder, because, so this is a theory that I have. I also was born in Korea, um, lived in a big city until I was six, and then moved to, I moved to LA, but it was the suburbs of LA, so, like, we were nowhere near downtown. Yeah. But I kind of feel that I'm more of a city uh, type of person, too. Mm-hmm. Um, living in the suburbs of LA and living in, you know, the suburbs of Atlanta, has always felt a little slow for me. Do you, is it yeah. possible that at that young of an age that mm-hmm. um, your environment would have left like a life-changing mark on kind of your psyche and where you feel comfortable? Is that possible? So I guess it depends on how young you are. Um, developmentally, usually like psychologists will think um, the lifespan into chunks. So um, pre-adolescence, adolescence, and adulthood. And it's like, it's divided into those chunks because what determines kind of your psyche fits within those age periods. I think me, the bigger transition was um, going from just Korea to America. I didn't speak like a lick of English. I mean, I was seven, you know? Mm. Um, And so I think that was a bigger transition. And, you know, I got bullied a lot when I like first moved here. Kids are so mean. I was in second grade and, you know, like I couldn't speak English and I didn't know what was going on. And um, yeah, it it was just, it was that, it was more of that transition than kind of the pace of things. But I think, yeah, I think um, on an individual level, it could have been much more significant for you, that kind of like change of pace, you know, Um, because I think I was going through more of that, like, language barrier you know the classic I don't know immigrant experience yeah no I mean that makes sense as well because those are all things I went through as well um oh I started with uh, first grade when I first came to America mm-hmm. um so I think kids were a little bit more forgiving mm-hmm. for whatever reason I, I don't remember getting bullied too much although I did mm-hmm. get bullied a little bit so yeah no I was I I, I was just uh as you were talking um mm-hmm. it, I could relate, so uh, I wanted to take the chance to ask you, um, yeah, if you had any opinions about why. Do Do you feel like that's something 
a lot of Asian American immigrants go through in, in terms of um, being impacted by that move and having some sort of, I don't know, like the experience that we have um, with wanting a faster paced environment. Like, is that, is that just us two or is it on an individual <laughs> level or is that something that you've kind of observed on a larger Asian American population here in Atlanta? I guess, so I, I don't think, um, Atlanta is actually very interesting because um, a lot of the Korean Americans that I have interacted with here are actually born and raised here. Um, mm. And even folks that moved away from college, they came back or they just, they born and raised, went to um, high school, and then went to like one of the Atlanta, Atlanta schools, like GSU, Georgia Tech, Emory, UGA. Right. Um, and then they kind of went back to wherever they were from. And, you know, they kind of like, or they live in Midtown somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so I think like, it's hard to speak to that because I think my network has more of like those people. Um, but I think kind of by and large, yeah, I think Asian Americans definitely have a hard time transitioning, especially if they're immigrants, wherever they are, you know, and obviously that experience will be exacerbated um, depending on where you live. I would imagine that an uh, Asian American immigrant child who lives in North Dakota is going to have much more of a visceral experience than an Asian American immigrant that moves to LA, right, in like Cape Town. And so, um, yeah, I think it's, it's contextual for sure, but there's a lot of protective factors. Um, right? Like the consistency of their parents and kind of the cultural education that they're getting at home. Mm. Like if the parents are able to um, integrate a bicultural identity for their child um, and to, if, if they know what that even means, right? Mm. Um, if the parents are English speaking and or, and or blue collared or white collar jobs, right? Like all of these like, ecological things things I think kind of really Im impact the experience of even the individual so it's mm. it's hard to say kind of at large um, but for the most part uh, I think nerd moment like what research says is that a lot of Asian Americans do experience feelings of marginalization and there are significant differences within generations so first generation um, as in like Im like immigrants mm -hmm. and then 1.5 that kind of in the middle um, and the second generation all do experience that acculturating stress, so acculturative stress, um, but it's for different reasons, actually, which is really fascinating. Interesting. You know, let's hold that thought because I want to get back to that. But um, before yeah. we get to that, I want to talk about, um, yeah, like your current uh, study because um, you are at, you're getting your doctorate degree. Um, and, I am. Yeah. <laughs> and so I need it now. <laughs> If you could, if you could talk about what you're studying and what that's all about, um, that'd be yeah, great. Yeah. Sure. So um, I, I, when I'm asked this question, I say that I study Asian American mental health um, at large, mm -hmm. but um, I have a specific like project going on right now. It's my pre-dissertation, and um, it's on the acculturative stress 
It's on a culture of stress and its relationship to self-esteem and how a sense of belonging and social self-efficacy mediate that relationship. And um, mm. kind of in layman's terms, it's basically does social self-efficacy, which is um, this sense of confidence that you are going to be able to handle yourself and be accepted for who you are in a social setting, um, that and sense of belonging, you know, pretty self-explanatory, um, but how those two things um, kind of explain this relationship between a culture of stress and self-esteem. And usually those are, um, so if there's higher, higher a culture of stress, then there is um, lower, so they're negatively correlated, right? So if there's higher a culture of stress, then there's lower um, self-esteem. But if there's lower a culture of stress, as in it's easier for you to adjust, adapt, um, and acculturate, then there is self-esteem. So that's kind of what I study um, in particular, but I am interested in a lot of different things, um, trauma, um, like the immigrant experience, like in with language barriers, um, access to resources, psychological help seeking. Mm. Um, yeah, but that's my specific kind of one thing going on right now. Mm. And I think you, you kind of explained it along the way, but just so I'm clear, can you kind of define acculturative stress one more time? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so for uh, immig mostly immigrants, like all of these kind of constructs have been mostly applied to an, an immigrant population, um, but it can be applicable to uh, any marginalized person, but yeah. there are couple of choices of what happens psychologically when you are adjusting or adapting or developing um, as a person with marginalized identities or, um, or one marginalized identity. Mm -hmm. And um, people will either assimilate or acculturate or kind of um, avoid and or reject. And so so these kind of three options. So um, assimilate is you assimilate into the so for, I think, a lot of us, especially East Asians, um, when we do assimilate, we try to assimilate into white people. Mm -hmm. um, and this is kind of your, like, you know that, like, one Korean kid that's in a fraternity <laughs> and right. white fraternity and has no Korean friends and, you know, like, that's kind of, like, that. that is the way to live for them. Mm. Um, that's kind of, I think, the best example that I can give for assimilation. Mm. Um, they don't, I, they don't give kind of much thought to their um, culture, heritage culture, um, and they assimilate to kind of uh, major, majority, more popular societal kind of trends. Um, but it doesn't always have to be like white folks. I think there are a lot of Asian Americans that grew up, grew up with African Americans and Latinx folks, kind of mm -hmm. depending on the community that you were brought up. Um, because I think large Asian American communities are pretty rare in the US, and very geographically determined. If you do, if you did grow up with a different um, kind of group, then it's more likely that you assimilate. Acculturate is, uh, I guess, the more positive version of that. You go through a process. You definitely kind of are juggling between your heritage culture and the mainstream culture, and you're trying to go through a process of where you're um, kind of internalizing these two cultures and really doing kind of a value-laden process of like keeping what is good and um and 
distancing the things that you feel like aren't helpful for you, um, mm. depending on kind of your, um, yeah, your values and also how you were brought up and like kind of all of your context and um, upbringing. Um, kind of that is rejection is almost that extreme spectrum where folks will like hate being Asian, you know, and, and, um, they will really reject it, reject that identity, reject that culture. And oftentimes there's a lot of hurt, uh, behind that, um, or underneath that. And, um, yeah, but I, I, that's definitely an experience that I think Asian Americans go through. Mm, I too. see. So, and when, when you were talking about acculturative stress, um, it's the stress. It's basically the stress of, is it kind of like juggling cultures? Is, it, is that kind of a, a simple way to put it? Yeah. So it's the, pro it's the stress that you gain from that process of internalizing the two mm. cultures. Right. And so um, as a Korean American, there are many aspects of me that are Korean to the core. You know, you can't take it out of me. Um, and there are, of me very American too you know and there there are parts of me that get frustrated with Korean culture because you know of my American identity right so it's that process of becoming truly becoming like Korean American and um, I think that is kind of a subjective definition you can you know define where you would like but there definitely is a third culture that is um, Korean American right as opposed mm -hmm. to kind of being like a first generation Korean and then like not Asian American or not Korean at all you know mm -hmm. right so that like um internalizing and making that your own um that Korean American bicultural identity mm -hmm. so the stress yeah stress that you experience from kind of that process mm -hmm. wow wow and so that's kind of what you're studying um mm -hmm. and you mentioned how you work at a clinic um, as a therapist, right? Um, I do. So does your work with those people, uh, I guess, patients that come to see you, mm -hmm. is that mostly focusing on um, the stresses that they have due to being an immigrant? Or is it just a wide range of things? Yeah, so it, it is actually more of a wide range of things. Um, my, uh, yeah, my patient, so my patient caseload goes from as young as age 10 um, to, I think the oldest person I'm seeing now is 52. And so, right, like very, very different things that they're coming in for. So um, it's not, right, just kind of that immigrant experience, but a lot of the times, and all of my moms are Korean except one, um, I have a South Asian uh a female client and she's awesome. Love her so much. Um, it's actually really fun doing therapy with her because we relate like on a lot of things. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, really like her, but except for her, all of my patients are Korean. Mm -hmm. um, but they come to our clinic because they're looking for that shared experience. So even if they're not coming in with that, like, Hey, like I'm an immigrant. So this is what I'm struggling with because of my identity. I actually think a lot of people don't think about that on the, uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, or even like really in depth if they don't ever really have to face, you know, having to think about it in depth. Mm -hmm. um, but they come to our clinic or, or look for me because there's this shared understanding, right? Like you're Korean, I'm Korean, um, and you're going to get the cultural nuances. Um, 
of my experience. So even if someone is coming in with um, depression because they're going through divorce, um, they there's a specific way that they have thought about marriage and relationships um, and a significant other and what that looks like for them that has largely been influenced by um, their identity as of being Korean or being raised by Korean parents and their mar their example of a marriage is our Korean parents right and so it's all it, it all is integrated into kind of that therapeutic experience um, for all of my patients and um like scholastically too it is the most important for asian americans um to have an ethnic match with their um with their counselor their therapist than any other racial ethnic group um that's interesting which, is, which i think says something yeah hmm. so so you're saying that is is that a preference thing or is that an effectiveness thing it's a preference thing hmm. so actually so uh like, yeah, so for within research, literature says that there's actually not that big of a difference of kind of who you go to. Um, the only difference that we'll make is if you don't, if you don't go to a multiculturally competent clinician, mm -hmm. um, then that will be a very negative experience for you. Mm -hmm. um, but if you can go to one, their uh, racial and ethnic identity actually doesn't matter. Um, but again, I think, um, I think Asian Americans tend to kind of look for Asian American uh, clinicians and um, this is like a whole nother whole nother thing but yeah. I think that has a lot to do with like shame and stigma you know and, and right. kind of what's associated with mental health and that and mm -hmm. um, kind of that mistrust with Americans or you know people that are not of the same in-group as us right mm -hmm. we consider that very important because we're collective and we kind of keep um, the struggles we go through within us right um, because it's shameful to let that out to anyone else um, and invite them into kind of our struggles and our trials and tribulations so um, I think that's that speaks to um, the ethnic match preference oh, interesting you know when you talked about stigma I was actually surprised to hear that there's a 50 something year old that comes to see you because the older oh at least observationally um, from my small circle that I, I'm, I'm seeing is the older a immigrant Korean American is, mm -hmm. the less likely they are to be willing to go into something like therapy or counseling, right? That's a stigma yeah. that Koreans, well, I don't know about Koreans, but at least for the immigrant Korean Americans that they, they have, right? Yeah, so yeah. Do you still see that for the, for the people that you see who are younger, do you still see that as kind of a stigma that they have to get over or is that by and large gone in the second generation? I wouldn't say it's gone. I think it's, mm. you know, cause that shame and stigma is generational um, in and of itself and in, in its nature, right? Mm. Like if our parents think mental health is dangerous and it means that you're psychotic when there's nothing wrong if you're psychotic, mental illness is a very real thing like any other sickness in the world, right? Mm. Um, but I, I think because of kind of that understanding and this fear around mental illness, um, and that was what our parents' generation really grew up with. And, and particularly that, right, like survival mentality of our immigrant parent generation. Um, I think they, we inherited that, right? And so even as somebody that works in this field um, and being, I'm 1. Um, like 1. 1.5, 1. 1.5 generation, mm -hmm. but large, you know, having spent 
life in America that those conversations are still really hard to have with my friends, you know, because they're just kind of like, you know, and, um, and I see that even in my patients too. It's just like, it was really hard for them to come to me. Um, and when they made that decision, it was like a big one for them. Wow. Mm-hmm. So when are you um, going to be finishing up your, your studies? Are you, are you close? <laughs> Not close enough. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, actually it's, Speeding by. So I'm um, at the end of my second year, which Mm -hmm. is, I barely got used to saying that I was in my second year. Mm -hmm. Um, And how like it works for us. um, I have four years and then uh, like on campus of clinical and didactic training Mm -hmm. and with research. Um, And then I have a fifth year residency. So internship year. Mm -hmm. And um, that, that fifth year is a very similar process to like med school. There's a matching process. Um, Mm But our fourth year is largely applying for that residency and internship and um, doing our dissertation. So the third year, which is what I'm coming up on, is kind of my last year taking classes. Um, um, But yeah, I will be seeing um, patients all throughout until I'm done. Um, So that stays pretty consistent, but I'm kind of done with like taking classes and stuff, which feels good. Um, So technically, I have. I still have three years left, but they all look pretty different. And so I think that that's what it feels like. It's going to go by fast because mm. it's not like the same thing, you know? So once you graduate and you get your doctorate degree, do you hope to be doing something similar to, the, to what you're doing now? Or are you mm. looking to do something completely different? Mm. Yeah, that, you know, I ask myself that question every day. <laughs> like, why am I getting my PhD? What am I going to do? <laughs> Um, so I would, so I came into, um, like my doctor program wanting to be a professor. (laughs) I thought I wanted to stay in academia, um, and teach and continue to do research, but I actually love clinical work, uh, much, much more than I had imagined. Um, and I think a little bit of that is because of that conditioning of like, you need to do something prestigious. So like, you know, like academia was, you know, made so much sense. Mm -hmm. But as I'm working with um, families and individuals and couples, like just the healing that I'm able to be a part of in their lives, that means so much to them. And the transformations that I see kind of in their day to day, there's just no like other work like it, you know, and I really want to stay in um, practice, but I actually kind of want to take a non-traditional route. Um, I think after I graduate, I want to do practice for a little bit and find a way where um, I am still able to engage in research. Um, So maybe like kind of do an adjunct position or something like that. Um, But I think I want to go into partial consulting, but also um, like start my own business. And yeah, I haven't flushed that out yet, but like something along the lines of kind of psychoeducation with mm-hmm. Asian American families um, and like individuals uh, and like nonprofits that are dedicated to kind of Asian American communities, immigrant communities, um, something along those lines. Mm-hmm. So, so I, yeah, I want to yeah, I, I ask you a personal question. Um, yeah. So, as Asian Americans, we know that our parents can be very, um, with good intentions, they can 
demand a lot from us, right? In terms of like, like you were talking about prestige and things like that. Do you feel mm -hmm. like you fulfilled that with your parents by going to Harvard already? Or <laughs> are they still kind of wanting you to, up, you know, get to the next level, whatever that may be? Um, yeah, you know, I think I gave them like everything they needed. <laughs> now I'm just kind of like, what are you going to say to me? What are, right. You know, um, I'm just kidding. Um, no, my mom still yells at me that like, I don't do the dishes correctly. Um, <laughs> I think, yeah, I, I mean, I felt really blessed that I actually, like my parents did want me to do something prestigious, but they always added the clause of do something that you love mm -hmm. and do something that you feel like you can be good at. And at the end of the day, like where you feel proud of yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and so they never pushed me into medicine because I hated biology, you know? So it was like, it, that wasn't the clause. And even when I was done with my master's degree, um, my parents definitely weren't like, okay, like time to become a doctor. You know, they always gave me the option. They were like, yeah, go work. And, or, you know, like, please make some money. Um, Cause I've been like such a perpetual student. Mm. Um, or they were like, just do what feels like would be fulfilling for you. Um, mm. So I think it's because like, I'm just, I love learning and I love school. Um, I'm, okay, I'm getting a little tired of it now, but um, <laughs> I think it was like really my own decision that made me kind of um, like take the PhD route. Mm. But, but yeah, my parents weren't unhappy about it. They weren't like, you're going to get your doctorate. That's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I see. Oh, that, that's awesome. So then I want to uh, shift gears a little bit. We, we kind of talked sure. about your journey, um, how you went from being an uh, immigrant to kind of, studying what you know influences impacts uh, the asian american or just immigrant um you know stress factors and things like that right but um, mm -hmm. i wanted to ask specifically for asian americans um you can talk uh statistics or your own anecdotal experience but mm -hmm. what are some of the most like what are some of the biggest obstacles or biggest struggles that you see asian american immigrants kind of dealing with Mm. oh gosh by and large um family issues mm. yeah I think that's wow. always something that comes up for um like for my clinical cases um even like within scholarship so um so APA the American Psychological Association obviously kind of this like godfather governing body of my profession um, has all these sub sub branches um, where these divisions kind of focus on a specific group. And so there's um, one called the Asian American Psychological Association. And it's like a community of Asian American psychologists, researchers, scholars, um, and they publish kind of a big bulk of uh, what's out there um, about Asian American mental health. And a lot of kind of what they write about is um, kind of the, that piece about the stress, the acculturative stress and kind of um, stress related to racism, um, like cultural misunderstandings, code switching, things like that. Um, so that's kind of the academic part. But I think in my clinical work, it has been a lot of like family things. You know, I like never felt that my, um, you know, mom really saw me for who I am. And uh, she just didn't have the language to, right? And 
kind of, there was always a mismatch between like, I know my parents love me, but I, I don't, they don't show me in the way that I understand it. So I kind of always grew up feeling without, you know, um, or I worked so hard to prove myself and it like, is never enough. Like, am I never enough? You know? So, um, I think anecdotally in terms of kind of my clinical work and what's out there in the research, obviously, although what I mentioned isn't expansive, um, differs a little bit, but it still speaks to kind of one and the same, right? Um, because I think that cultural difference between um, generations, um, there is a big, like, big reason why uh, mental health is becoming such a big concern for Asian Americans. Oh, so, so when you say family, is it predominantly like a parental relationship, um, parents and offspring? Or do you mm -hmm. see any issues with like, you know, for example, siblings, but maybe spouse, mm -hmm. I don't know, uncles, aunts. Um, <laughs> Always like an uncle. uncle in there, right? um, so, so uh, it's, it depends. Cause I, I have cases that are all like very independent. So I have a case mm -hmm. that is like a relationship, their marriage. Mm -hmm. um, and then I have a case where, you know, kid like, sisters are fighting like kids are fighting but it's because you know after you kind of see the root of it it's because of um, the comparison like that you know mom perpetuates on the kids that they oh, feel familiar. like they, they have to be in competition with each other um and then you you dig a little bit deeper into that and it's because mom um struggles a lot with depression and suicidal mm -hmm. thoughts Okay. Right. And so kind of her emotion regulation is off. So she's like spewing off to her kids and then like that's making them fight with each other. But the reason for why they would come to counseling is because like mom is stressed out that the kids are fighting so much. Right. But like there's all these like underneath layers that are influencing this like one presenting concern. So it, it's hard to say like, you know, this one thing or generalizable common experience because, um, yeah, folks are just coming in with like all the different things. Wow, wow. Yeah. No, I, I think that's great because um, I, I think it's important to be open about the wide gamut of issues mm -hmm. and, and reasons why someone might go to a clinic like yours. Mm -hmm. um, because I, I think one thing that I personally would say I struggle with is I do struggle with that stigma of mental health, um, seeking out help when, when need be. Mm -hmm. But a lot of that, I think, is because I don't know why other people go to see therapists, right? Like, if I knew some of the reasons why they went, I think I would mm -hmm. then be able to say, oh, those are things I'm struggling with, too. Maybe I should go see um, a therapist. Mm -hmm. But because it's so rarely talked about in our community um yeah. i mean I'll, I'll see a white friend go to a therapist and it doesn't do anything for me right i'm like okay you're white you know i maybe yeah. don't relate <laughs> exactly yeah um, but when i see an asian american going um and i know kind of generally what the issues that would warrant going to see a therapist is i, I think that would um, help me so yeah, anything else, like any other reasons why people come to see you, just, just so that we can kind of open the door on this for other Asian Americans? Yeah, for sure. You know, and, and I think this is, this is like the very interesting thing about mental health. Um, there, is, there is definitely mental illness, you know, and, and that is kind of the 
you know, serious cases. Um, I have a client who does have psychotic symptoms and um, struggles a lot with OCD and has to be on medication and has to be very like closely monitored and she's pretty high prices. Um, I've, I've had, you know, like patients tell me about their intent for suicidality. I've had to do reports, you know, mm. like mandatory reporting. Um, if like, yeah, for, you know, abuse of of our informed consent. If you tell us you're going to hurt yourself, you're going to hurt your, hurt somebody else. Or if you let me know that um, a child or um, an elder is, you know, in an abusive situation, we're, we're bound by law to report them. Mm-hmm. And um, I think like I've been in every one of those situations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like those high crisis situations, like, like people, um, and what they struggle with are definitely there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a part of that, yeah, you know, feels scary kind of with anything that is high this. Um, but it's, you know, like if you think about, you know, a heart attack or a stroke or anything that is, um, kind of on the high crisis spectrum of physical illness, right. You can go from a cold, which is not serious. Um, uh, that's my dog. <laughs> you could hear that. Um, but yeah, you could go from like a cold or you could, you know, like, or you could go into the hospital because you had a heart attack. Right. Mm-hmm. So there is like a spectrum and one is more high crisis than like another. Right. right. Um, it's the same thing for mental health. Like, of course there's high crisis people. Like this is a real thing. There are chemical imbalances. There are genetic, um, components to mental illness. And it's a sickness, right? But I also have people on this other spectrum who come in because they want to understand their relational patterns, right? Like they never feel like they are able to really connect deeply with people and they just like don't know why, you know? So none of their friends are meaningful. Um, all of their relationships, you know, kind of are like short-lived and, um, you know, like are they, they want to find a better kind of version of themselves and like go through an experience of self-growth and want to be intentional about that. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. There there are definitely very real experiences of pain kind of in um, those cases that I have as well, but it's not right. Like psychotic symptoms. Mm -hmm. And so I think, like you said, um, David, I think this gamut is really important highlight on right because um mental health and psychopathology are very very different things Mm. um and that's kind of how i always have like talked about mental health and just like yes it of course it encompasses high crisis cases like we're healthcare providers we are bound by hipaa you know like um yeah like insurance pays us you know Mm. so uh, a lot of the times like we just kind of have to change the language to being exactly the same as physical health right Mm. um and I think that is what that, that's helpful for people to hear because, you know, of course there's more serious and, there, and then there's ones that you're doing as a checkup, as kind of a self-reflective, um, introspective, kind of wanting to grow and change some things that um, aren't serving you anymore. Mm. So what I'm hearing is really there, there can be any reason to go see a therapist. It doesn't have to be you know, I'm having suicidal thoughts or, you know, it doesn't have to be high crisis, as you mentioned. Yeah. Um, it can be yeah. very checkup style. Like, I just want to figure out um, like what's going on mentally for me or, or things like that, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Oh, that, that's good to know because um, I, I think it's, it might be shocking to you, for you to hear. I think this past year, 
was the first time that I understood it that way. Um, mm-hmm. I prior I'm 32 years old now. Up until I was 31, I think I, I thought that going to see a therapist was exclusively for people who were dealing with um, high-grade mental illness, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like like sociopaths, psychopaths, you know, all, all those all those all those things, right? Like um, very mm-hmm. severe depression, very like debilitating anxiety, things like that. Mm-hmm. So it's it's very interesting for me to hear that um, those aren't exclusively the reasons why you need to go see a therapist or you would want to go see a therapist um but yeah no thank you thank you for sharing that that's uh I, I, do you feel like um a lot of the asian american community doesn't know that yet like am i do i sound like a crazy person to you for, for thinking <laughs> that way or have you seen people like me too? no no absolutely not um so it, it is so it is the case for Asian Americans um, that they will come in when things are like worse than I guess other people, Mm -hmm. how other people would label them. So that is supported by literature. Um, Asian American clients are usually at a higher crisis than, you know, like when, then when compared to other, um, other racial groups. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, that has to do a lot with that, you know, stigma piece. and you know, because our culture is so embedded within that like like savior safe face culture too, mm-hmm. I think that has a big part to it. Um, because like going to a therapist, like admitting defeat, uh, that you can't handle it on your own, you know, life's hardships. And I think actually a beautiful aspect of the at least, you know, Korean culture, and this is applicable to I think many Asian American cultures, are that we are just resilient, you know, and um, we got through poverty and wars and colonization and right immigration. Um, And so this like survival mentality has been so crucial to our survival. And again, it's generational in nature that when you kind of um, are struggling and you don't know what to do with this perpetual sadness or perpetual like worry, um, I don't know, I think it feels kind of like a defeatist mentality, you know, to have to go see a therapist Mm. for for us because of that cultural part. Um, But I think... I think that's shifting a little bit, right? And so you mentioned it a little bit of like, oh, is it changing for our generation? Um, the answer is not a yes or no, but it there is there is a there is like a slight right kind of um, change of changing the course of direction, mm. and that makes me really hopeful um, because we're not stuck in this kind of like, well, everything has to be hard all the time for us, and we just have to grit our teeth through it, right? Our parents mm. um, came to this country and gave us all of these wonderful opportunities and work so hard for them so that we can have a better quality of life and um i think taking care of your mental health is a big part of that right and um i know that it's mental health has also become kind of trendy like in the past um like five even five years Mm -hmm. um and that's helped a lot with the stigma of everything um but I, i think it has to kind of yeah do with that quality of life piece for folks that are um, on the spectrum of kind of being, you know, like mentally ill. And mm. so, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, no, but yeah, yeah. yeah, I think it is, it's, it is shifting a little bit for us. Mm. So uh, that, that's, that's interesting. Um, a, a question, because this podcast is called the, I hope they hear this podcast and, and the they changes to every 
changes every episode. So mm-hmm. I, I wonder, is there anything that you hope Asian Americans who are not your patients know mm-hmm. something about mental health um, that you feel like mm-hmm. isn't really well known? Mm. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think I hope they mm-hmm. hear that mental health um, is a part of every aspect of your life, you know, mm-hmm. and I said this a little bit earlier that it will, of course, influence your um, physical health. The mind and body are connected. We've known that from, you know, centuries um, on. And if you like think about emotions, right, um, they are a physical response to your processing of a certain antecedent or an event. Right. And so like when you get angry, you're, you get hot and you get like your heart rate goes up and um, like you, you, you know, like your facial expressions change or when you get sad, right, like your body kind of, you know, changes and um, there are different things kind of going on chemically in your brain. And so there's a lot of this that is biological. Um, that is connected to the emotions. Um, and, and the reason why I say that is I, I think like people separate kind of that like, like mind and body part. But your mental health absolutely has uh, impacts on your physical health. And then I think um, because of the nature of mental health, it also has implications on your the quality of your relationships, um, right? Like if you are a really toxic person um, or just emotionally stunted and ha- you haven't gone through kind of the growth that you needed to, or even on the spectrum of kind of um, no one ever really taught you how to have healthy relationships relational skills um, and how to be intentional about doing that, then of course you don't know, right? Mm. But that's going to, um, I think, lessen the quality of your, um, yeah, quality of your relationships in your life. And that causes a lot of distress for people, right? Um, Dysfunction kind of in that, um, like interpersonal dysfunction. Um, And, you know, mental health also bleeds a lot into um, how well you're able to function at work. There is a huge part of, uh, like, so my specific, specific field is counseling psychology and um, we uh, we have kind of an aspect of our field that is dedicated to like vocational um, and career counseling because mental health absolutely affects kind of how effective that you can be um, in your workplace as well and how uh, much like how productive you can be and how much you can enjoy kind of your work environment all of that good things all of those good things so it it's every it's the human experience, right? Like mental health is part of every aspect of someone's life. And so um, I think that's kind of what, that's the big picture of mental health that I would want people to know that it's not, you know, just kind of um, like, yeah, I don't know. Um, go even go, I wouldn't even want to be, make it redundant like to just going to therapy either, right? Like mental health is a state of being, um, just like being physically healthy is. And so, um, and these things are uh, off balance, then everything else kind of is off balance as well, you know? So it's worth taking care of, it's worth investing into um, because it has long-term benefits for um, the quality of life that you live. And and so, um, because, you, you talked about the a the is it a cultural stress a culture of stress a, a culture of stress mm-hmm. um, and you talked about how um, kind of that internalizing the transition from culture to culture can cause these kind of stresses. Mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about 
kind of current affairs. I mean, I'm sorry, uh, the current state of things, right? With yeah. the coronavirus being, I mean, by the president, by it being called the Chinese virus, mm. um, do you feel, oh, what kind of impact do you think that has to the Asian American immigrant psyche? Yeah. So I, I have two um, responses to this, but more, one of them is like personal. And then one of them, I think is kind of what APA has been saying um, in kind of terms of the psychological tool that it's taken for Asian Americans. So first kind of to like that aspect, um, I think Asian Americans are struggling a lot with the racism that's, you know, like so blatant. Um, and even just the hate crimes, you know, the violence that's happening. I read an article about like a Chinese man who was stabbed like 13 times in Chinatown because he was wearing a surgical mask. And, you know, and I was just, it, 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 it I was just floored, you know? And um, so I, I think, right, even being exposed to news like that, like you just had a physical reaction to what I just told you, that like that piece of news, you know? And um, us having some kind of a connection to that because of the way that we look and the culture that we share, right? Um, like that reaction is a part of kind of your psychological processing of like something horrible that happened that I told you. And right, there was a connection that you made in your humanity um, that made you have a reaction, right? And so even the exposure to the racism, I think has been hurting Asian American folks and there are psychology. Um, mm. and, and yeah, so the APA has been a lot of uh, guidelines and resources actually for Asian American folks um, to deal with their mental health and kind of um, what's been coming out. And um, even, you know, news mediums have been putting out a lot of good stuff and kind of like the model minority myth or the model minority, it goes from the not model minority minority to yellow peril, right? This like mm -hmm. huge shift and kind of thinking of Asian Americans as this like perfect and obedient and um, pristine kind of, right? Uh, marginalized group or minority group to now us being a threat to, mm -hmm. you know, the world. Mm -hmm. And so um, there are, I think, very real implications of that. Um, I think personally, so, um, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Um, no, 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 it go was ahead. really interesting because you said that even just ex like, even if we're not experiencing the racism ourselves, exposure mm -hmm. to seeing it happen to another Asian American, you're saying that can have a psychological toll, right? Absolutely. So um, it's wow. called, yeah, vicarious trauma. Mm -hmm. um, and so that the spectrum of trauma can be very, very um, different. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you know, somebody that um, kind of hears about this piece of news and just feels horrified about it and um, experiences kind of that like visceral reaction very different than, you know, somebody that um, kind of had like maybe a family member be killed by police brutality. That's also vicarious, but it's mm -hmm. vicarious trauma um, because of a like racially charged hate crime, right? So again, like that spectrum thing. And usually we kind of either fall in the middle, right? Um, but yeah, there are uh, many and a ton of articles and, and studies that have been done to show that it impacts us psychologically, um, yeah, in, in negative and harmful ways to even um, be able to identify with the person that experienced it. Then, um, question, because mm -hmm. if knowing that this vicarious stress can happen, mm -hmm. as an Asian American, who, like, if I were to go through uh, a racist experience, mm -hmm. 
would, should I share that with other Asian Americans mm -hmm. or am I doing more harm by sharing it? Yeah. So, so there are, so this is where it gets, I think, kind of tricky. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's first important to um, have Asian American experiences, good and bad, out in to the world so that um, people don't think of us as such a monolithic um, group of mm -hmm. people. And I think what this coronavirus stuff has really unearthed is that racism towards Asians and non or anti-Asian sentiments have always existed in this country, mm -hmm. um, but have been kind of hidden or, um, right, there have been other, I think, um, kind of more pressing things, you know, that have happened to other communities. Um, but it, it, all, it always only takes one thing, you know what I mean, to really like kind of show people's colors. And so this is a very drastic one towards um, sentiments. Mm -hmm. So um, I think to like answer your question, I think it's important, you know, that like you share your story and that there is a more accurate um, depiction of what being an Asian American in the U.S. is like. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, there it's very protective. It's a protective factor for um, anyone that has gone through anything that's distressing um, or um, or uh, like a trial for them to get gain support, the support of others, especially those that can like share that experience with you and so um yes there is this vicarious trauma but um make sure if you are the one that is experiencing that you're reaching out to your network of um, family and friends that care about you and love you you know um yeah maybe you know like i don't know writing a long facebook post about it if it was a really visceral experience and like somebody else reads it and it isn't good for them like that could happen um but it's more important for as the person that has experienced it for you to gain support and people um to kind of be there with you mm, okay so okay that, that's good to know because I, i'm such a I, I like to think things not in the straightforward way so mm -hmm. when i heard that because i do have a the episode right before this, I did have a guest who did talk about kind of a racist, kind of a microaggression that, that he experienced mm -hmm. because of the coronavirus. And yeah. that just got me thinking, should I edit that part out? Um, mm -hmm. If I'm going to have a detrimental effect to the you know, greater Asian American. Oh, no, 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 no. I think people will like, you know, um, identify with it and it'd be helpful for them. But mm. I think it's that like those really gruesome kind of right experiences. And mm. um, one of my like colleagues are there, she's doing a really interesting study about racial trauma, um, about the Charlottesville rally, uh, mm. when, um, right with the KKK that happened in, um, in um, Virginia a couple yeah. years back, and kind of how African Americans experience racial trauma, even just kind of a like, knowing about that experience or even being like living in the state of Virginia um and there there's you know like that is a definitely a, like a thing right mm. but again super important for you to surround yourself with people that you feel like are going to understand you and um support you mm. I see I see sorry and, and you were talking about your personal uh, oh yeah I mean I um, this isn't like super important <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, before this thing like blew up mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it was just kind of at like a, oh, we're just closely monitoring, you know, this, it was, it was already a thing. It was definitely in the news. Like people were already talking about it, mm -hmm. but before it was stay home and don't leave. Yeah. Um, I went to Sephora to get um, like blush. Mm -hmm. And so I was at the mall, I was at Lenox 
and um, I was like looking for shades and like looking at colors and um, I like just I, I was hoping to get kind of like a brush or like a sponge to like look so that I, I didn't have to put like my fingers like directly into it. So I asked a Sephora employee um, and she was like a white woman and, and I asked her, I was like, um, hey, like, can you just like help me out? I think I just need something to um, like to sample this with. Mm -hmm. And she, she was, she was like friendly, but um, she was like, yeah, yeah. Um, well, we have sponges over there. And this was like a whole aisle like next to me. And she was like, well, we have sponges over there. Um, I'm not going to touch what you're going to but I think yeah the we're, we have them over there and wow. like a, <laughs> a part of me was like <laughs> I was just I was like you know it just stop it makes mm -hmm. you be like wait was that was that an Asian like Asian related racist thing or am I overreacting did I take that too personally right like mm. all of the things all of the thoughts went through my head but then like as somebody that does this research I was like no this is how marginalized people of any like any group have to feel they, they always have to feel like was was that me you know what I mean mm. and I realized I was like no it's probably not me it's probably her you know mm. um and so I mean I was polite I was like okay like thank you very much for your help um, and then it was really funny because he, she gave me like a car leaving out, um, of like, how was your experience with us today? <laughs> um, she was like, please like, and it was specifically to her. It was like, um, you know, like just give us feedback. Maybe she was like an employee. I'm not sure, but she was like, she was like, yeah, I would really appreciate it if you, you know, if you like if you fill this out and you can you can be eligible to win a gift card or something mm -hmm. and I was like I was like I took it and I was like yeah thank you um have a like great rest of your day and I was like girl I got nothing nice to say about you <laughs> so I'm not gonna go <laughs> wow, wow, wow. <laughs> yeah like things like that mm -hmm. so it's just it's it's a thing mm -hmm. and you know um but I, I talked to my Asian identifying friends about it. And, you know, even that like sense of like, what the heck, you know, like, ah, oh, that's so like, gross, you know, like, girl, give me that, give me her number. Like, give me that Sephora's number. I'm going to call, you know, like even that sense of camaraderie for me, I think was really um, encouraging and uplifting. And, you know, we were able to, I was able to get it off my chest um, and gain support around it. And that felt really good, even though it was definitely a negative experience that had me leaving. Um, feeling some sort of way. Hmm. You know, that's interesting how you talked about, well, is it me? You know how you, you kind of took a step back mm -hmm. to really even see if that was kind of a racially charged situation. Mm -hmm. My wife actually had something similar. Uh, well, not, not the situation, but mm -hmm. we were in Las Vegas uh, and on our way back, as we were going through security at the Vegas airport, right mm -hmm. after she walked through, she said she saw the security guy get like a can of disinfectant and like spray it in the air. But, but the thing is like, I was watching and he wasn't doing that before. Um, so for her, yeah. like I had to like talk to her and say that probably was a racist situation. Yeah. But for her, oh, yeah. she just said, no, I think he was just being, you know, overly cautious. He probably would have yeah. done, it. you know? So um, I think that way of kind of, being in denial kind of almost um 
Is that, I feel like that's pretty common for Asian Americans. Is that right, you think? Yeah. I wouldn't even say Asian Americans. I think it's anybody, any people of color, um, mm. women, you know, like really anybody with an identity that is, that has historically been disadvantageous, mm. right? Um, right, like sexist comments, you know, like I think I hear a lot of women being like, was that sexist? Like, did he just invalidate my, like, opinion or comment mm. or feeling because, like, he's a guy and I'm a girl and he chalked it up to being like, oh, you're being, like, such a woman right now. You know what I mean? Like, mm. you know, like, girls are like that. Girls are crazy, you know? Um, and, you know, like, women, I, even, you know, this population is kind of like, uh, right? But, that, so that's a shared experience, um, but most of the times it's because of these, right, like systems um, that make us try to trust, right, that they have their best, like our interests at heart, but a lot of um, systems at large do not exist for us and they're not to serve us. Um, they are, you know, like prim their primary interest is of a very specific population. So um, I think yeah, it's supernatural for us to want to go throughout the world assuming the best. Um, how could we be psychologically safe or sound if that wasn't the case, right? Mm. But, um, but I think in those kinds of instances, our gut instinct is usually right. Mm, I see. Well, that's good to know. And, and so uh, then last piece of kind of advice for the Asian American community, mm -hmm. um, when someone does uh, share a situation or an experience they had that they think was you know racially motivated um what, what is the best way that we can support this person is it to say oh like that's messed up and to encourage them or is it to say hey maybe that situation wasn't really what you were thinking like what is what is most helpful for, for that mm -hmm. person yeah so um i think first it's always to uh validate mm. so whether or not factually it was a racially charged experience and there really isn't such a thing because like how could you prove that it was like a fact or not right, right. um we can't read people's intentions or minds so even if i asked that woman at sephora did you mean to be racist to me she could straight up be like never you know right. Right. um so again like there isn't a fact to this like what is most important is how um that person experienced that mm. and their reactions to the situation and to validate that you know like that must have been really hard for you um and you know what you're like sharing with me and what you're feeling right now makes a lot of sense to me mm. um so just to kind of like hold space i think for that person um that in itself is actually incredibly healing incredibly encouraging but i think um if you want to move to the space of like advocacy, right? So like that is kind of that space of um, being a safe person for that person, mm. um, for whoever experienced kind of these visceral um, experiences. But if you want to move kind of one step further, it would be advocacy, right? And that was kind of what my friends did of just like, do you want me to act on your behalf? Because I realized that you experienced something that was unjust, right? And so I will go and be kind of your advocate. Um, and so, you know, my friend who was like, I will call us Sephora, I will find out who she is. And, you know, I will make sure you at least get a Sephora gift card, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, 
it's that like sense of action of saying like, hey, I feel this with you and I'm going to put it into um, kind of my, like a behavior, right? Like a something I can do for you. Mm. Um, but I think kind of at the root of all of this, right? Whether it's just being encouraging, being a safe person um, or moving into action of advocacy, you always want to put the person um, at like in the center, right? So a lot of the times like we have a tendency to hear someone's story and relate it to some past experience that we've also had, right? So this fury that we've experienced because we're looking for context, right? Like if you tell me that you stepped on my, you like someone stepped on your foot, I'm going to recall a memory when somebody stepped on my foot and how badly that hurt, right? Mm -hmm. To be able to relate to you and understand what you're going through. Um, but that happens a lot in kind of these very nuanced and complex situations too. So a lot of the times what ends up happening is the attention and the focus and the emphasis is taken off of the person that actually experienced this and it becomes kind of about you, you know, and it mm -hmm. comes about your reaction, what you would have done about it, um, what you think is the proper measures, right, to be able to deal with this. But you actually really want to put the ball back into the person's court, right? Like, what do you think would be helpful? And that that's the question, actually, that I think um, is beneficial to be very frank about in a lot of in a lot of situations that we don't do often, you know, um, just saying, hey, what would be helpful for you? And can we ideate on that together? Um, I can be a thought partner for that um, if you don't quite know what that is yet, you know? Um, and then, you know, even that process, I think is really empowering to the person because they feel cared for, that someone is asking them those questions um, and they're willing to put it into action if that's what you want, right? Um, but even just to have that conversation, I think is, is something that we're not doing as well, right? Mm. Something that can be healing to our community in a lot of ways. No, that's great. That's awesome. I would have never thought to do that, but um, yeah, that, that's really good advice. Um, so but before uh, the last question I wanted to ask you is um, you, you are a Christian Asian American uh, studying psychology and, and working as a therapist in the clinic does your identity as a Christian um, influence how you approach your, your, you know, therapy sessions or even the way that you think about psychology or does it not? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think, um, yeah, I, I think because the root of kind of how I explain anything, um, human pain, human joy, mm -hmm. uh, connection, uh, love, loss, grief, um, hurt, you know, um, is in light of, in light of my, um, identity as a Christian, mm -hmm. I can't not, you know, mm -hmm. um, have that lens, I think in whatever I do. Um, I, admittedly when I first started, actually, I was, my faith was very shaken because, um, you're learning all of these things about the human experience that don't include God, right? Like academia is very like, right? It is godless um, because it relies on science, right? And so um, I think I went through a majority of actually of my program so far really, really struggling and wrestling because I felt like I could, ex I could explain everything about human life without, without the gospel. Um, and I almost resented and questioned wh whether or not I had just believed in um, kind of the 
core tenets of Christianity uh, without really actually questioning it or having enough knowledge to question it um, like enough, you know? And so uh, I think again, and and honestly, like I'm still going through that. I I think um, I would not be like truthful to myself if I said that I was like completely out of that, Mm -hmm. but I don't know. I think my relationship with God is very interesting in that way that the only way I grow is like by being pushed to these bounds, right. Of intellectually, um, spiritually and emotionally, but something that I see in my, um, patients time and time again, because I sit with them through kind of really like the most difficult parts of like parts of them, um, and their lives is the need for uh, a love that doesn't exist anywhere else. Mm. And um, yeah, that doesn't dry up, um, you know, that isn't earned and isn't um, contingent, you know, like on on a claim or uh, desirable, attractive, uh, you know, um, traits, you know? And so, yeah, and, and someone to truly deeply see us and know us and still want us, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah, I think, Oh gosh, like that's, I'm like getting emotional because I think like if I could be the person that gives that to all of my patients, I don't think they, they wouldn't need me, you know, um, they wouldn't need any, like, like really, you know, um, like any kind of care, but, and so I think seeing maybe human depravity in those moments and like seeing the answer as that love, um, like has made me cling to um, my relationship with God in different ways that I didn't expect when I started this work. Um, And then I'm brought back to how I got started, you know, when I was 12 and I was listening to Dr. Joe speak, um, all the things that she said that resonated with me was because my relationship with my parents were really difficult and their relationship with each other was really difficult. And it was really difficult being an immigrant, you know, and like all, you write all of these things. Um, and I think that like still small voice for me that feels really called into this field, um, is the last voice that I hear before I like go to sleep, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, because sometimes it is a thankless uh, occupation as well. Um, you're taking on like, you're taking on someone else's um, burdens and hardships and yeah. their deepest, darkest secrets and thoughts and desires and motivations and failures. Like that is a lot. And so, um, and to do that well, right? Like you need, like I need to be a certain type of person um, and all of my flaws and my like sinfulness and the things that I struggle with, I really have to be active um, on working on that because it influences, I think my, you know, therapeutic relationship again, as well to the people that I serve. And so again, having to be intentional about like that self growth um, makes me turn to God all the time, right? Like, God, I don't have the answers of um, how to be different, any different than how I am right now. You know, Um, I've also been shaped 
shaped by my environment, my parents, our socioeconomic status, my, you know, like um, being, me being an immigrant, me being Korean, me being a woman, um, that has, you know, cocked like who I am and like really, really good things about me, but also like the really, really bad things about me. And so like, how do I move forward into becoming a person that can be as close to um, you that can give that kind of love to each and every person that see and touch, you know? And so um, it makes me feel hopeful because it's not on me, you know? Um, And even the growth that I've experienced as a person, um, I would have never been able to do like on my own power or intelligence or degrees, like all of that, like it, it's not because of any of that, you know, like it's truly because, um, God did a lot of like surgery in in my own heart and, um, like very graciously carried me through, uh, seeing myself as I am, um, and really like honoring parts of that, but also, um, dealing with parts of that too. And so, because I see that transformation in me and kind of my helplessness when it comes to, um, making those changes within even my own self and my own life. I think um, I can only hope for that, you know, like for um, the people, like my patients and the people that I serve. And um, I just care about the Korean American community in general so deeply. I'm really involved in um, the Korean American Coalition, which is like a nonprofit in Atlanta that serves Mm -hmm. kind of um, a wide gamut of needs in the Korean community, but we focus a lot on civic engagement and, um, you know, getting people represented in that way. Um, and so God gave me this heart and I think it would have never been from my like own wellspring, you know? Mm. And I think to walk, walk in that, um, first keeps me in check because I, completely realize how blessed I am to be so like so well educated um, and to have the opportunities that I do and uh, even the platform that I do and even people letting me be their therapist. Sometimes I'm like, are you just kidding? (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, like truly, you know, sometimes I'm like, wow, like God can't do, can I do this? You know, like, am I equipped for this? And many of it, many days, more days than not, you know, I feel like I, I can't, you know, like, cause I know how fallen I am and how much I struggle. Um, but that makes me like see God all the more, you know? And so, um, so that strength that I think I get from him, um, and my relationship with him is, is the posture that I try to bring into my clinical work too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like pray for my patients, um, Because at the end of that hour, you know, they go off into their own lives and into their world. um, And I don't see them for Mm. until next week, you know, Mm. and again, like I occupy such a small part of their lives. It's one hour every week, you know, Mm. Um, and the struggles that they're bringing into session with them is the thing. It's a 24 seven life consuming, you know, um, distress. And so um, the times when I have sessions where I'm like, wow, um, we got through a lot and I see this person as they are, but holy moly, like I have to let them leave, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and going to carry this hurt with them. And I feel so powerless, you know, when that happens. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So yeah, I, I, I pray for their week and I pray for, um, for God to keep them and sustain them. Um, and I pray like he makes me, you know, a better tool, um, a more sharpened tool. Uh, and just, it's just a lot of like reliance, you know, yeah. <laughs> I'm kind of saying the same things like over and over again, but, um, yeah, it's been a very big mirror to, I think, like my shortcomings and like my pain and, you know, my past, um, but also made me very, very aware that um, despite my clinical training, um, despite my like research background, none of that is enough to um, redeem humanity. Um, mm -hmm. And like, there's only one that, you know, that can do that. And so um, I find myself relying on him a lot because That's of awesome. that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, especially because you're in a field where you have so much authority over someone else and they're probably relying on you to help them navigate through some of the most like intimate things of their lives um, to have something that you can rely on in, in turn, I think is that's that's great because I'm, I'm sure it's, it's it can get overwhelming a lot of the times. Right. Having to like you were saying, take, take on the burden of other people's issues and it's not just one person it's multiple people whose um you know burdens you have to carry so that's great that's great um anything else I, um wow i think we're at like an hour and a half this is super informative <laughs> conversation i really i'm glad we had you on was there anything that you you felt we should talk about that that i missed mm. yeah i think um it's not anything you miss, but I, I think if I were to just kind of add a, like a, put an add on in there mm -hmm. is that I am like so happy to have these conversations, um, like on an individual level or like a group level. Um, like I really want to be, I got into this field because I want to be a part of the solution of destigmatizing mm -hmm. mental health for the Korean community, um, Asian American community at large for sure. Um, and so so I think a lot of the times like people like me uh, in the mental health field or people, you know, like kind of in these like doctorate, whatever, doesn't mean much. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> like, no, I'm pretty I just, sure it means a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it means something, but you know, like I, I just feel like the idea is that we're so inaccessible, you know what I mean? Like, I, but I would love to get coffee and like talk through these things, you know, and I, I can't, I can't be your therapist. Mm. Um, right. But I can refer you to one if you are interested in that, you know, mm. but again, like, I think just to have conversations about what mental health looks like in the Asian American community would love to sift through that with someone, you know? Mm. Um, and if they want clarity on kind of an experience that they've had like would would love to just kind of be a listening ear um and and make myself available to those for those conversations you know yeah. so i think i i want to be like i hope to use this platform to make that really crystal clear that um i think folks uh yeah kind of have this mystified you know um idea of us like especially kind of on the other side I, like as a therapist as the clinician mm. and like someone that is getting their PhD and it, yeah, but it's like, absolutely not. You know, I, I cherish, um, connectedness and relationships a lot. That's the most important thing in my life. Um, and especially if it's around mental health, uh, I would love to, yeah, hold space for, I think anybody that wants to have these conversations in a formal or informal way too. Wow. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Well then, you know what? 
if a few listeners out there resonated with anything we talked about, or you know, you had some questions to our guest, uh, soon to be Dr. Hannah Lee, um, and you want to connect with her, um, you can feel free to email me at ihthtpodcast at gmail.com. That's just, I hope they hear this abbreviated podcast at gmail.com or on Instagram. I'm going to tag her in the post that I promote this episode on. Um, that's just, I hope they hear this. Um, or on Twitter at IHTHT Podcast. So um, anyways, you want to communicate with her and get in contact with her, um, feel free to let me know and I'll, I'll connect you with her. Um, and and you, know, you guys can have your conversations. Um, and especially because, uh, yeah, you gave your, your blessing to do that. Um, if if mm-hmm. there's any part of you that is curious about this and wants to uh, dive deeper, please uh, feel encouraged to do so. And uh, yeah, thank you guys for listening. And thank you, Hannah, so much for being on. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, it was really eye-opening for me. And I think mm-hmm. we got a lot of good content out of it. And I'm actually going to take you up on that offer as well. I- I'll contact you. Um, I-, I would love yeah. to just sit down and, and talk more about this. Um, sure. I feel like yeah. it's, and you, you talked about how you were part of the um, Korean-American coalition. Oh, what's the, mm-hmm. is that? The Korean American Coalition. It's KEC for short. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um. That's also uh, something that piqued my interest. Um. So. Um. Maybe we'll. Maybe we can work it out where we can have you on a second time to talk about that. Um. Yeah. KEC is like family, so yeah. would would love to. Okay. Awesome. Great. Well, again, thank you guys for listening. Uh, thank you for being on, and uh, yeah, we'll we'll talk to you next week. Bye, guys. Bye. Thank you for having me.